If you got your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Here at Catusa First, we work our way through a book of the Bible at a time, and we do that so we don't skip the hard stuff. And also, there are books of the Bible that you might avoid sometimes, right? Like if we, like numbers, don't worry, we're not going there next for what book we're studying through. We got a couple of different options that we're prayerfully considering on which direction to go. But we are, we've been studying Ecclesiastes. Uh, it was kind of, we were jokingly saying it was just uh, my midlife crisis uh, manifesting itself through preaching because we went through Jeremiah and Job and now Ecclesiastes, which are all like the downer books. Like, but I don't think Ecclesiastes is a downer book at all. I think it's got a bad rap. Because what it does is it tells me what to avoid in order to have a more full life. Now, it's written from the perspective of somebody who lives in a pretty much godless society. Like, he's not a, an atheist per se. He's kind of agnostic. He's writing uh, this book as though God exists, but God doesn't really matter. And I think that's the way a lot of our world lives. A lot of people would say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but their God doesn't really matter to their life, and that manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. And what it's calling us to do is to live with an eternal perspective. Live our life in such a way as though we recognize that we are strangers and foreigners in this world, and to look further beyond. Some of us like, we have a hard time preparing for retirement. Like, we just can't think that far ahead, right? And so you never, like, it's when you're younger. You don't think about starting to save when you're young because you're young. And then when you're older, you're like, ah, I wish I would have saved more when I was younger. And then when we're older, oftentimes we look back and we go, I wish I wouldn't have wasted so many years. There were so many years when I was a, a young man and I was an atheist and I was in all sorts of trouble all the time. I look back on those years and I go, man, if only I hadn't wasted all that time. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't want you to waste your time or your life. And the way that we are more likely to not waste our time is if we can have an eternal perspective. Like, we're not just looking 10, 15, 20 years down the road. We're looking 1,000 years down the road, right? 2 million years down the road. And when we will be with Christ, how we will look back on this life. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6, if you got it, would you say, I got it? There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So let's pause right there and then we'll look at the very end of this chapter here in a second. But so I think this is extremely relevant today. He says, imagine that you have all your needs taken care of, that you're well thought of by your friends, that you have all the toys that you could want, but you still have the weight of the world on your shoulders 
in such a way that you don't actually enjoy what you have. That I remember as a kid, my dad would come home. And, and he was in ministry, and he would come home from a, a long day's work. And it wasn't the job necessarily that was hard on him. It was always the people and the problems and the trouble and the drama that would weigh heavily on his shoulder. And he would come home, and he would sit on the couch, and he would do this. And he would just kind of sit there in silence. And I don't know if any of you dads know that feeling after a long, hard day's work where you come home and you can't enjoy. You've got your kids and your family and your wife and all of this, the, the, the house that you've provided for your family. And he comes home and he's not able to enjoy it in that moment because the weight of the world sits on his shoulder. I think more so than ever, we are experiencing the weight of the world on our shoulders on a regular basis. I don't know how many of you watch the news and you just go, I mean, I can't watch it anymore. Why is it? Because the weight gets too heavy. How many of you, you hear about things that are just going on culturally and you just go, I don't even understand the world we live in anymore. It's because the weight of the world just gets too heavy. How many of you want, it just seems like everyone you love and care for is battling something, whether sickness or finances, or whatever it is, and you just find yourself exhausted or you find yourself just in a dark room crying your eyes out? It's because the weight of the world just gets so heavy sometimes. And I don't know what to do with the weight of this world. Like, it, it's hard to figure out how do I get rid of this sometimes? And what he is expressing here, he says, imagine you had everything, but only thing that was missing was the ability to enjoy it. Without an eternal perspective, we don't know how to fully enjoy what we have at the moment. Because we have a temporary mindset where all of a sudden it was the things that bring us pleasure, and then we begin to worry about what if we lose these things? And then that creates a kind of anxiety that just begins to steamroll in your life where you're like, okay, now I have to hold on to all this stuff because it was the stuff that brought me pleasure instead of I find my satisfaction and rest for my soul in God and God alone. That's where my pleasure comes from. So if I lose everything tomorrow, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter. What I love is he says that, uh, and, and let me just be clear, it's a deeper weight than just job stress. I think it's social, it's political, it's financial. This weight we just feel, especially, I, I know women feel it too. Um, when I was growing up, maybe it was just the family environment that I brought in. I saw my dad bear the brunt of that weight. And I'm afraid that one of the ways our culture has failed is we pass that weight on to our kids now. And the level of anxiety and stress that kids have to deal with is just unfathomable to most of us. The, especially during 2020 and on, the rate of anxiety and depression amongst kids has raised by almost 200%. One in 10 adults now struggle with some form of mental illness when it comes to depression or anxiety. That's, that's a lot. What this is calling it is it says that, that feeling, that tension, that weight is a kind of evil, but it's a kind of evil we've just become comfortable with accepting. 
says, you're not supposed to have that. It is, it is a result of the fall, but the way you were designed, you were not designed for this world. You were designed for the Garden of Eden. He says, verse 1, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And then repeats that later on uh, in verse 2. It ends with, this is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So two times, he calls this weight that we kind of feel, this place where we're stuck, where you can have everything, but not the ability to enjoy it the way that you were meant to enjoy this world. He calls that evil. And some of you, you might just be under the impression that, you know what, I don't really have as much as he says he has. But we do. We do. Um, Throughout, we need to remember that the church hasn't existed for just, you know, a couple hundred years, that this is written for all of history. And for most of history, you had to live by the water in order to have some kind of sustainable life, right? Your family, your tribe, your group had to have some kind of flowing water reservoir that you lived nearby in order just to live because you're going to grow crops. And you hoped you had a good season or your crops would die. And if your crops died, your family might starve to death. Now we grow food as a hobby, right? Can you imagine those people? They're like, we're like, well, I got six tomatoes growing. Like six tomatoes, that's it? How are you going to live? Oh, I just go to the store, right? What used to be done for survival is now a hobby. You can even like, I like to watch those survival shows, you know, Bear Grylls, and he teaches you how to go. And we watch that for entertainment because we know we're not going to have to do that. But for thousands and thousands of years, that was just Monday, Right? That was just how you existed. And then um, we had World War I, World War II, then the Great Depression. It wasn't until the 1950s that households began to have two cars. And if you had two cars in your household, you were in the top 1%. You were luxurious. And I imagine most of you here, you, at least at some point in time, you've had two cars, Right? Some of you might even have three or four cars for your family. And we have constant entertainment. I can go to Netflix or Hulu or YouTube, and I can have whatever I want for entertainment instantly and whatever you need for your house. Just Amazon, next day shipping can be right there. So we have more than any culture before us, and we are more miserable than ever. There is a society sickness. Verse 4, he talks about where it comes from. He says, For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet no good Do not at all go to the one place. He's looking for satisfaction for his soul, and he's never been able to find it in stuff. The great myth, the great myth, is that you will find satisfaction in your soul in something other than God. The great myth that every culture has to repeat to the next culture Because we have spiritual ADHD and we forget immediately after we're told that there is one place where you find rest for your soul. 
But every culture goes down this path of trying to um, create or manifest some other version of rest for their soul. Because the last thing they want to do is admit that they make a lousy God. We want to be gods ourselves. We were talking with my children, uh, my wife and I, about Adam and Eve in the garden. And then it wasn't just that they ate this fruit. It just wasn't that. It was their decision that instead of listening to God's wisdom for their life on how it is best to live, we are going to listen to somebody else and decide what is moral for ourselves. They became self-regulating regarding morality. And as soon as they did that, something entered into the garden that had never been there before. Shame. They covered their shame. And I think all of us, as we get older, become experts at covering our shame. How do we cover our shame as adults? I think we do it with stuff. We do it with busyness. We do it with toys and fun and resources. We do it through sensuality and sexuality. We're always trying to just figure out some way to hide the fact that we have rebelled against God and we want to feel comfortable in a place we were not meant to be comfortable. And it just gets worse and worse. I was reading, um, she's an atheist uh, sociologist um, and she happens to not believe in what we would call biblical marriage or biblical sexuality. She doesn't believe in any of that stuff. But she said that the feminization of men and the confusion of sexuality is the great sign before any civilization collapsed. It happened with Rome. It happens with the Ottoman Empire. She says all of that leads up to the weakness of a structural society. And it happened to be another atheist philosopher that I was reading this week. And he was talking about uh, that the, one of the reasons that America became as strong and as successful as it was, was the uniqueness of Christian morality. And he says that one of the things that is happening to America now is we've forgotten and we no longer have some kind of common basis that we can build off of, that it is not the might that makes right that decides morality. It is not numbers that make morality. It is God who decides what is good. And because we have left what God has said what is good, brothers, there is a heartache within our culture that has no way to express itself. But you can't put the lid on a boiling pot for too long without it exploding. And so it explodes in political violence. It explodes in uh, family interactions where you now hate this person because they think differently than you. They've forgotten how to love because their standard for love is themselves, not the creator of love. And my heart hurts as you stand back and you watch a world self-destruct. And in the same way that Solomon says, I look around at people who have everything, but they have lost the ability to enjoy it. Do you know, joy should be one of the key characteristics of every believer. Yes, do I want people to become a Christian because it is true? Because God is the creator? 
He's the one who created reason and logic and science and mathematics and all the beautiful things that this world operates on. Yes, I want to invite them into this beautiful world. But also, some people aren't convinced by that stuff. But if I tell them, this is the best time of your life. That if you come into a relationship with God, He will teach you not only how to love, but how to laugh and how to have joy. Even Jesus says, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. For the joy. We don't, we're just not a happy people in this world anymore. Or if we are, maybe we should differentiate between happiness and joy because like tacos make me happy, right? So is that what God does? Is it like tacos and it's just this temporary happiness? No, there is a deep-seated no matter what. Some of the songs that we were singing this morning just reminds me that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away if I lose everything. And this is probably way too personal, but I'm... I, I'm um, that's just the mood I'm in today, so we have to deal with it. Um, I was having this conversation with my wife last night. We both just ended up crying because uh, I'm dramatic. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm super dramatic. Uh, yes, I, I have a uh, heart condition that I was born with called right bundle branch blockage. And I, I've always had it, and it causes my heart sometimes to misfire. And it'll do this, do, 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 do. it's trying to find, it has to basically create new pathways in order for my heart to beat in rhythm. And every now and then, very rarely does it do that. But yesterday, for whatever reason, it did it most of the day. So I kind of spent the day just trying to calm my nerves and myself because my heart is beating like this within my chest. And I can cause a little bit of anxiety and nervousness. And uh, I try not to worry my wife with any of this stuff. And um, as I put River to bed last night, and I told him goodnight, because I always have to tell a story, and I go and I lay in the bed, and I tell my wife, and I've been telling her about the heart, and of course that makes her nervous. And I said, look, I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine. I understand what it is. I'm not worried. I says, but just if something happened, if I was to have a heart attack in my sleep, God forbid, I said, I just want you to know, I've had the time of my life. I said, the Lord has been so good. He's blessed me with this wonderful wife, these incredible children, full of conflict and chaos, right? It's all there. But even with the conflict and chaos, because I have an eternal perspective, I can enjoy it. And then she starts to cry, please don't die. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to die. I'm a hypochondriac. I'm just making myself nervous, right? But, but it's true. And see, here's, here's the world that we live in. They don't have an eternal perspective. So everything is an existential crisis. So everything is a threat to their identity. Well, if you don't do this, then you're saying I'm not. No. You are not your stuff. You are not, you're more than that. You are created in the image of God. You are his child. And you belong in relationship with him. You are soul thirsty for your creator. 
Scripture says, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. And I'm willing to make a bet with anybody that the relationship with Jesus Christ is far better for your life than your relationship without him. Anybody says, well, I, don't, I don't need God. Oh, yes, you do, because you've just made yourself God. And you might be able to erect around yourself a nice little kingdom that lasts for this life. But that's it. It lasts for this life. And there's no U-Haul behind the hearse. You can't take it with you. He ends, let's end here, let's wrap up, verse 10. He's going to end with a question, and we're going to try to answer the question. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He says, who could tell a man what comes next? Who, this guy doesn't know what comes next because he's living an under-the-sun kind of life. And that, that term that's all throughout Ecclesiastes, this under-the-sun, that is a, a perspective that is temporary and not eternal. That's that key phrase that lets us know that he is looking at life through the lens of this life is all that there is. Who knows what comes next? You want to know who knows what comes next? Somebody who's died and come back to life. Somebody who created not just this world, but the afterworld. And oftentimes, church, what do we say? What do you do with the guy you can't kill? You do what? Whatever he says. What do you do with the guy you can't kill? You do whatever he says. Why? He knows something you don't. What good is a gun against a guy you can't kill? It's useless. This is why Scripture says that he renders their weapons and authority and power useless. The cross is not just the defeat of sin and the promise of a resurrected life. It's the defeat of an entire worldview that says might makes right. He says, you can throw whatever you want at me. I just go, whoop, I'm right back up. And I'm going to trust because everybody has an opinion about the next life. Everybody does. Every guru, every philosopher, every scholar says, I think after we die, this happens. Okay, but you haven't died. You haven't seen. You don't know. You don't know. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and three days later came back. And so I'm going to trust whatever that man says about what comes next. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Man, I don't, I don't know how we communicate that to a world that's, it's just that fish that's flopped out of the water and it's just going around, but it's just flopping everywhere. But like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Can we help you? No, I'm fine. 
the illusion of its own stability. We don't know the best way, but I wish they could just hear that there is a place where there is rest for your soul. Adults, we cover up our distress internally through all sorts of different things. That's what's addiction, and that's what, uh, you know, all of this stuff manifests itself is our soul looking for something. It's that inner compass that God has given you that says, there's something missing. You need to figure out what it is. Well, Scripture and Christ have given us what it is. You need to rest. Christ can give it to you, and he wants to. And it's not just rest for your body. You know, this is why it's still important for us to follow some kind of Sabbath. You need to learn that you are valuable whether you're doing anything or not. You can actually sit on the couch, and you are just as valuable, men. You are just as valuable not doing anything as you are when you're out there working on the house or working for your job, because it feels good to accomplish something, doesn't it? It feels great when we finish a project. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You finish something, and we do the man stare, where we just sit there and we stare at it for a while. I did that. Even if you'd even do it when you mow the lawn sometimes. You just look out there like, I did a good job on that lawn. My grass is green, right? And we, do, we love that sense of accomplishment. And this is the temptation, that temporary sense of accomplishment we think satisfies our soul. But it's temporary. And what God wants us to do is to learn to sit and go. I am just as satisfied doing nothing as I am after my biggest accomplishment in this life. Because those don't define me. You define me. Because I don't find my rest there, I find my rest there. Where do you find that rest for your soul? Where do you find rest for your soul? Is it healthy or unhealthy? My prayer, kind of sum up today. Adults, some of you have forgotten to learn to stop, to be still, to go to God with your anxiousness, with your nervousness, with your sadness, with your depression, you've forgotten that you should go to God. Say, God, you said your yoke was easy and your burden was light. It doesn't feel light today. It doesn't feel easy today. Would you calm my worried mind? Would you repair my heavy heart? Would you help me to find my satisfaction and my rest in you and you alone? If you're not a believer, you have to carry all that yourself. I'm just, just straight up, that's just how it is. If you're not a believer, if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all that weight, the weight of the world is on your shoulders. My fear is, is we are living in a world where parents can't take the weight so they pass it to their kids. Through anger, through violence, through encouraging certain things that this world promotes that it just, just lays more burden upon burden upon burden. Like, when, when I was uh, some of the kids' age here today, I didn't have to worry about, like, what college I was going to. Now they're going to, like, elementary school. You better get good grades. Like, there's just all this pressure. Be an adult now. Scripture actually encourages you to be a child. When I was a child, I acted like a child. I thought like a child. And then it encourages you to become an adult. There's no in-between in Scripture. You know that. Jesus was never a teenager. We can talk about that another week, right? All right. Um, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I will be at the back today, and I would love to pray with you. 
that you could give your heart and your soul and your mind to Jesus Christ. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of everything you see around you and the giver of every breath you take. And your breath and your heart and your mind and your soul and your body was designed to worship him. And in him we find rest. In him we find rest and satisfaction.